Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Hickenlooper is as unlikely a politician as his name. Uh, He started off as a research geologist, and as as a necessity after his job was phased out, uh, tried his hand at opening a brew pub that became an empire. From there, he was encouraged to run for public office and became an innovative mayor of Denver and a very successful governor of Colorado. Now he's being talked about as a candidate for president. I sat down with Governor Hickenlooper at the Institute of Politics this week to talk about his unlikely path, this unusual time in which we live, and what his plans might be for the future. Governor, I want to say this. We all, you know, Martin Luther King said, uh, we, we all came over on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. I noticed in looking at your history that the ships that brought your folks over came over a lot sooner than the <laughs> ones that brought my my folks over. Uh, you've got like you've got a deep lineage on one side, way back to the Revolutionary War. So my mother's family, I was raised outside Philadelphia uh, with my mother's family, and they were an old, old, old Philadelphia family. My mother was. Uh, uh, 12th generation uh, Philadelphia, the Morris family. Yes. Um, but it's funny, after, in the Great Depression, they lost whatever fine, whatever wealth they had was largely uh, disappeared. And so we never really, I mean, we didn't belong to any private clubs. We didn't, uh, we didn't really get involved. We knew there were a bunch of, we, we, my great, great uncle would have a holiday party every year where there would be 150 people that were all either by blood or by marriage related to me. And my my great-great-uncle would offer me, I think it was a quarter, if I could name 50 people in that huge group. And it was hard. You know, I get to all my cousins and my aunts and uncles, and I was still only halfway there. Here's my suggestion. Name tags would have been been good. The the true political mind. So, yeah, in fact, uh, uh, Anthony Morris uh, in the 1600s in Philadelphia uh, was a prominent figure. And what did he do? Well, he started out kind of as a maltster, but became a brewer. A brewer, yeah. We got to stick a pin in that one. Here. <laughs> he'd be he'd be really uh, he'd be really proud of you. And then his grandson Samuel Morris was another brewer who went on to become aide de camp to George Washington. Yep, exactly. And and very involved. He created the uh, first city troop, which was. When, when people talk about the Second Amendment and well-regulated militias, the Philadelphia First City Troop was the first militia. And mm. uh, and Captain Sam is how he, again, in, in my mother's family, they'd talk about Captain Sam. But us kids, I never knew anything about him and, you know, never 
there was no there's no conduit for us kids into that old family so it was largely unknown to me until really just in the last five or ten years i mean i'm a history buff this is great stuff <laughs> i mean you know to me this is all just stuff out of books but uh, and then on 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 your other side but well, don't forget the fact anthony his son anthony was the brewer and then also became a mayor of philadelphia when it was just a little teeny you know just a village really i mean a very small town and i thought that i didn't know that I mean, here I was a brewer in Denver and became the mayor of Denver. I had no idea that that happened, you know, 11 generations before. Imagine what a good talking point that would have been. <laughs> oh, my God, it could have changed my, changed my <laughs> elections. But on the other side, you had uh, deep uh, Civil War roots. Yeah, my father was from Cincinnati uh, and much more recent arrivals to this country. Uh, and his, uh, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, was Andrew Hickenlooper. And he, on... At the at the Battle of Shiloh, he commanded a uh, he was a captain and had an artillery uh, unit with twelve artillery, and they basically defended the Confederate Confederate onslaught that allowed Grant to get across yeah. the river, regroup, and counterattack the next morning, which kept and us from getting siege. Yeah, yeah, and then then they went down to Vicksburg, and uh, Andrew oh, Hick- on Shiloh, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. that then on to Vicksburg, on to Vicksburg yeah. where there was a siege, yeah. and and Andrew Hickenlooper had the idea that that they would dig tunnels under the redoubt, and, and, and he directed all that. He had about 200 people working for him, uh, and these tunnels are eventually what blew up the redoubt, the, yes. the, the, the fortification walls, and allowed them to, to win. Uh, and then, and he was, you know, I mean, he ended up being the second youngest general in, the, in U.S. military history, second only to Custer. I told you this caught my eye because I'm in the middle of Ron Chernow's great right. book about Grant, uh, and you're, you you bitterly noted that Andrew Hickenlooper <laughs> did not get the credit well, he deserved in it, that book. It's so funny. You look at it, and he was a very modest guy, never never sang his own, never tooted his own horn. And he went on then from, from Vicksburg, and, and Sherman requested him to come because in Sherman's March to the Sea, people always think, wow, what an amazing feat. And, and what was so unique about Sherman's March to the Sea was he had no supply line. He was going as right. fast as he could, so he had— including soldiers and support. He had 15,000 soldiers, 3,000 support. So he had 18,000 people and horses, and they were foraging. So if they stopped for more than a day somewhere, they were like locusts. They would have eaten everything that could be eaten. They had to keep moving. Well, if you look at South Georgia, it is full of streams and marshes and floods. And uh, Andrew Hickenlooper was in charge. He had 180 uh, personnel with him, soldiers, and they built all the bridges and all the pontoon, what they called corduroy bridges, through all those swamps and rivers so that Sherman could continue marching. And so there's an old family picture between of Andrew Hickenlooper uh, sitting between Grant and Sherman and you know was well-regarded and embraced by both of them. And yet Chernow somehow... I mean, if only he would have talked to me when he was writing that book, I could have. We have all the old diaries. Well, listen, when Grant the Musical is written, maybe they will will include Andrew Hickenlooper in that version. I don't think we're going to stop it there. I think we're going to go Hickenlooper the Musical. Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) there's still time for that. Um, Let's let's, uh, thank you for allowing me my (laughs) geeking out moment uh, on, on, on history. Let's talk about your history and uh, your early experience in Philadelphia. So I was, uh, <clears throat> my, again, my mother's family. Uh, my mother was the oldest of five daughters, my father the youngest of three sons. And my father wanted, wanted to get away from Cincinnati, where his grandfather was this kind of big shot. His, his father, my grandfather, was at the time the youngest Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Uh, 
in that in that circuit. And my my father just wanted to get away, so he moved to Philadelphia after the war. Met my mother, who was widowed, had two children, married her, had two more children, and then he got sick. Uh, you were young. Yeah, so he got sick when I was five, and then and passed away two and a half weeks after my eighth birthday. And it was a tough, in a funny way, it was hard because it was a, such a sad house. My father was an invariably funny guy. He thought if you could make a joke about something, it could never beat you. And he would constantly make jokes and was loved telling shaggy dog stories. But of course, when someone that funny and full of life passes away, people stop talking about him. And so my mother was very direct and she was, uh, you know, and she was never sad, but she was very firm that we had to recognize you can't control what life throws at you, but you can control whether it makes you stronger or weaker. You can control whether, whether it takes away your joy and your pleasure. And she browbeat us in a gentle way, but maybe browbeat's the wrong word, but she, whether it was sports or drama club or academics, she thought we all had to find our own joy and, and create our own lives. And that whether, whether it was whatever it was, the real joy was being was going to be in helping other people and building those relationships, and that turns out to be you know good advice I think for anybody. You, uh, but it's still when you're at that age. That's a I lost I lost my father when I was a, still a teenager, um, but I had him for much of my formative uh, formative years. It's got to be that hole has to be there. I, I, I know that when you wrote about your life. Uh, in your autobiography, uh, you said you talked about uh, these these ghosts, and uh, and one of the ghosts was the healthy, happy father I hardly knew, and his ghost, which I've spent the better part of my life either seeking or fleeing. Yeah. Well, and it's it's funny that you know through life people keep coming into my life who knew my dad, right? So my dad uh, in in college was great friends with Kurt Vonnegut. And I met, I read everything that Kurt Vonnegut ever read or wrote, read, uh, mm-hmm. everything he ever wrote. And, you know, here I was 45 years old and this, he was coming to Denver and wanted a special beer to do. He was doing an art show, silkscreens. And so we made Kurt's Mile High Malt. And the first time he called me on the phone, he said, well, you can tell me what happened to John Hickenlooper, my great friend from Cornell. I said, well, that was my dad. I'm a junior. Uh, and so we became great friends. You can, you can Google Hickenlooper and Vonnegut Vonnegut, and you'll get a YouTube where he impersonates. He goes on and on and explains. He says, well, Hickenlooper, you're so charming and funny. And I knew your father. He was just blah, just dull as dishwater. (laughs) And that's got to have bothered you. Now I can tell you the real truth. He was not your father. (laughs) I am your father. And he's on, you know, in this YouTube thing, here's Kurt Vonnegut with his hair up, kind of wild, saying, I am your father. But it it was a gap, right? you, You end up finding these things out. Decades later than when you really needed them. Yeah, and also, uh, but it must be when you find people who do, who yeah. can fill in that gap. I always find comfort in talking to people who actually knew my dad, which my family didn't. You know, my 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 wife, my kids. Right. It's uh, it's meaningful. So you uh, you but you know we 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 there are a lot of people in politics who you talk to. Sitting across a table like this, who've been planning their uh, campaigns since they were four, you know, <laughs> uh, you were not that. You were not, of all these activities that your mother 
browbeat you to pursue. <laughs> the ones that you didn't gravitate to were student government, politics, none of that. What, what did you do? Well, it's funny. I was, I was a skinny kid, um, and I was, as the youngest of four, I was always agitating to, go to get to go to school. So she sent me to school when I was four, a year early. So I was skinny anyway. I had really thick glasses. Imagine taking the bottom out of a Coke bottle, you know, putting them in glasses. That's how thick my glasses were. And, and I had, you know, I mean, I was a kid in third grade that got bullied by it. And that was the year my father passed away and was so sick. And obviously, I wasn't aware at the time, but that, you know, I was just trying to get kids to like me. And it turned out I was being a jerk, <laughs> you know, really obnoxious. So I learned over those 10 years uh, how to get along with people. And I, I studied it. I studied how to tell a joke. So because at the dinner table, I couldn't get a, I could never tell a joke or get a word in edgewise because my older brother and my older sister were, I mean, there was, it was an open, you know, it was a feeding frenzy to see who got, uh, you know, FaceTime at the table and got to tell their, got to tell their stories. So I, I was, I love sports and I was very, very competitive. I wasn't the greatest athlete, but ended up doing very well. But I was so intense and had a certain anger. It took me a long time to kind of work through. Anger because of the loss of your dad? I don't know. I mean, I you know, maybe that's part of it. Uh, it certainly came from a very early age. Just uh, I would get go into rages about stuff all the time. Uh, I was always kind Not of... Not your image, by the way. No, well, I worked very hard. I, I really consciously in my... When I got into business and I was running a restaurant... I realized this was a huge liability, just that it didn't hurt me as much in college. It didn't help me, but it didn't hurt me in high school and college. But, you know, that that process of learning how to get people like you, learning to get along with everyone is a very valuable thing to learn. And it helped, you know, in sports that gave me, it showed in sports that I could, even though I wasn't the most talented, if I worked hard enough, I could make the varsity. And, and not only that, our team could win the championship. If I worked hard enough, even though I couldn't hit a curveball, I learned how to throw a curveball and, and got to be a baseball pitcher. And our team, again, I, I played in the American Legions. We got to the regional finals. We, my high school team won the championship. And that's a lesson that, you know, I, I, that's one of the things I love about sports. If, if anybody, if they're willing to work hard enough and they get some breaks, you can, you can, you can do well. Well, and the other thing is uh, it teaches you is how to play on a team. A huge part of, of which I was, again, I, if I thought some other kid wasn't hustling, I'd yell at him. I mean, I was, I think, the best uh, soccer player, uh, but I was no one. I was never going to be captain. No one was going to vote for me captain because I was just too driven during games and and stuff. Now, David Groverman, who was the captain of that bit of the soccer team, would disagree, and he would say he's much better, and maybe he was better. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't argue the point, but. Uh, certainly that competitive streak. I'm can sure get in scholars way. of sports are still trying to sort, <laughs> sort that one out. So you went, uh, you went to Wesleyan University, and I, I had a roommate here at the University of Chicago when I was a student here who was on the 11-year plan. <laughs> and you embraced the same sort of strategy. Uh, well, I was a bad student. I was dyslexic, and, and they didn't know what dyslexia was back then. So I was all I knew was I was a very slow reader. I never got an A in high school. I got, I got an A minus in physics in ninth grade, but that was it. And didn't get any A's in, in college. So I. Wesleyan's a pretty good school. How'd you get in there? Because um, I was a good athlete, oh, um, a very serious soccer player, and I tested really high. And basically, the, 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 the rap on me was that I was lazy and I wouldn't work hard enough. Well, I think I had some modest ADHD to go along with the dyslexia, so I was always behind, and partly because I just didn't like school. 
So Wesleyan in those days would take on kids that were perceived as high potential kids who weren't performing up to their level. Uh, and, you know, so I went there and became an English major, which was crazy. I mean, I, I thought I was going to be a writer right up until my last semester. And luckily I had friends who were very honest and direct and it sucked. They'd give, you know, my writing was bad. <laughs> uh, so then I fell in love with geology, right? My last semester and Wesleyan had a special program that allowed you to go back, take the basic science. And again, back in those days, we didn't have distribution requirements. So I never took math or, or any science as an undergraduate, even though I'd, you know, on my SATs, I did very well in math. Uh, and I was, you know, I was inclined in that way. Anyway, they had a special program for people to get, a, for non-science majors to get a master's in, in earth and environmental science and geology. So I kind of tried it out for a year. And then I just, I took a year off to kind of, because I've been in school too long, but then I went back and really did it. So I was there basically almost 10 years. They, the, a bunch of the professors at one point gave me tenure as a student. <laughs> yeah. Did they, at some point, did they say, you know, maybe you ought to think about life after college? <laughs> well, once I found the geology, the hard part is I, had, I took a year doing chemistry and physics and calculus and, and basic geology. And then I took the next year doing the graduate geology. And, and, and in between, I took a year off. So that's three years. Then I had to do two, two summers of research on my field. So I studied these volcanic rocks, this giant volcanic eruption that had taken place 45 million years ago, just north of Yellowstone Park. So I had to spend two summers, this is a terrible duty, two summers in the most beautiful mountain landscape you could ever imagine. Take the east and the west boundaries of Yellowstone Park and take it 10 miles up into the uh, into the Absarica Mountains. And I'd go out there and I'd you know, go out for two weeks at a time and never see another person other than my field assistant and just collect rocks and we'd camp you know, make a center camp center uh, of like center of a spoke wheel, mm -hmm. like an old wagon wheel. And I'd go out and do traverses every day in a different direction and come back to the base camp. Uh, you know, that was two years. So in the end, I got through in nine and a half years to actually get a degree in, in literature and creative writing and then to come back and get a master's in geology. It's not, it's not terribly inefficient. I would, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And that's how you got out to uh, Colorado. Yeah, I had the master's in geology, and there were, uh, you know, D Denver was one of the only cities where you could go, and, and uh, they were still hiring people. The oil and gas industry. Yeah, so I had five years as an exploration geologist, uh, and an exploration geologist takes what you see on the surface and tries to imagine what those, it's like a layer cake, right? It's how geologic rock gets formed. And that layer cake, when it goes underground, you sort of have to imagine what it looks like. And depending on the, the, the kind of topography underground is where oil and gas gets trapped. Uh, so it's very intellectually challenging. And, and, I, and I got to go to all these amazing, beautiful parts of the Western United States. Uh, but unfortunately, the price of oil collapsed in the early 1983, 84. Uh, and our company had done great. We found a lot of oil. But by 1986, uh, Occidental purchased the company just for the reserves, and they laid everyone off. So uh, it was funny. The, the, they hired, in those days, they hired an industrial psychologist to come in and spend an hour with every employee. And the one thing I remember that, that my takeaway was he pointed out that even all change involves loss, and all loss must be mourned. Be mourned. But, but even change you want involves loss but if you mourn that loss the change can be good for you and you have to you have to recognize that and embrace it which was a funny way of saying sort of what my mother had said that that 
no matter what life throws at you, you've got to make that. Did that immediately make sense? You, it, it, it reminds me of what Mrs. Churchill said after Churchill lost the election, and and she said, "This is a blessing in disguise." And he said, "Well, it's rather well disguised." <laughs> I don't know if, if how I would have felt if the company had sent in a a, 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 a a psychologist or a social worker to help me adjust the fact that they just bounced me out of there. But uh, but it did lead to you you uh, you struck gold in beer. Well, I, it's funny. I was out of work, and and not only did our company lay everyone off, but everyone was. So there were no no jobs, and I thought I was a pretty good geologist. Evidently, maybe not quite so good. Uh, but I was out of work for, you know, about some bit into being unemployed. I, uh, I, I came upon this idea of a brew pub. My brother lived in Berkeley, and I saw the third brew pub in North America had just opened, and, and, and the beer had more flavor, less carbonated. I said, I'd drive out of my way for this. And I came back, and I'd never worked in a restaurant. I started talking to everyone about, here's this restaurant that brewed its own beer, how great it was. I was still looking for geology jobs. I was thinking about trying to be a writer. I had a friend who was a sitcom writer in, in Los Angeles. And so I was doing that. But overall, I mean, I was out of work for, for more than two years before we finally opened this brew pub. We, we finally did. I had to go to the library and get out a book on how to write a business plan, if you can believe that, uh, just because I didn't know what the words pro forma meant. Uh, anyway, that, that process, about nine months, and I do remember this, nine months or a year, I remember looking in the mirror and seeing a different person than I'd always seen. In, in words, what way? I didn't have the confidence. I wasn't as sure. I always had this kind of rock-ribbed confidence. And, and in a funny way, I always felt that if, if, in times of real stress that my dad was there in spirit with me. Uh, and I began to wonder. I just began to doubt things I'd always taken as verbatim truth about who I was. Yeah. And you this look is, at— This is—it's this is, it, an important— lesson because you know we have this discussion about jobs and in the first instance jobs are essential in order to pay the bills and and take care of your family and and so on but there's this other dimension which is it's how we define ourselves it's you know it's about dignity and self-worth and and identity in, in a very primal way it's you know how we relate to our families and how our children and our and our loved ones in, in every sense it was it was a again very challenging period but also again i did even when i get depressed about it i did still for most of that time feel that i was going to come through it and i felt that level of confidence even when i began to doubt myself there was something in there that was you know again my my mother was my mother was 5 foot and and both my sisters are like five one. We always would ask the how tall are you? You're a, you're a big man, six two. Yeah, before I started shrinking, and but everyone always we give everybody the benefit here. <laughs> uh. That's why I love being in a, in an academic environment. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the the uh, that that indomitable you know my mother being this short determined woman who'd gotten a full scholarship to Vassar College and you know had kind of made herself. Uh, and and raised four of us by herself, that that kind of stuck. And and once we opened the restaurant, we finally opened the restaurant in 1988, and, and it was in an old warehouse in one of the worst parts of Denver, L- lower downtown. Yeah, lower downtown. The rent was one dollar per square foot per year, so essentially almost free. And it reflects that c- the community didn't value that part of town, the town at all. 
but there were four or five other entrepreneurs and people, and I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. If I, if the, if the price of oil hadn't collapsed, I'd still be a geologist. And yet once we finally opened the restaurant, the first day we walked in and the, and the place was a hit right off the bat and big crowds. And I knew I was going to be better at running that restaurant than I ever was a geologist. And it's funny. I mean, so many people have lost their jobs and been out of work for long periods of time. I think there's some point to trying to encourage them not to quit and, and to give them more opportunities and training and things. Cause for many of us, we don't start out in the best place for us. We need sometimes the, 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 the fits and tumbles of life to, you know, kind of jostle us out of our, of our complacency or, you know, where we're, we're comfortable. And suddenly we end up in a place where we're going to, we're going to be much more successful. And you were successful. You, you, uh, when you talk to people, now Coors Field moved in and that was a great, yeah, but that was seven years after I no, I understand that. I'm not, I'm not detracting. Don't you try I'm, to, to I'm, I'm winding up to give you a compliment here, Governor. <laughs> oh, so. phew, then I'll shut up. No, because you talk to people in Denver, and they talk, and because you go to Lodo now, and it is a hopping place, and no pun intended. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of people attribute um, its early growth to, the thing, to, to your own businesses there. Uh, it was my businesses, but also, uh, again, a handful of other entrepreneurs. And we all had a vision. And, and, and we, we didn't want to have entertainment districts because we thought then you'd have a lot of bars. When you have a lot of bars, there's too much competition. Everyone discounts their liquor. Kids come in and, get, and just drink too much, so the streets are noisy and loud. And we believed that getting people to live downtown in that neighborhood and eventually throughout Denver – was the key when people can walk to work and live in, in a city and, and, and function more on a pedestrian level, then you don't have all the traffic jams and, mm-hmm. and congestion that makes growth and economic success so problematic sometimes. So improbably, <laughs> uh, this thing takes off and all of a sudden people are talking to you about running for public office. Well, there was this, and it's kind of funny, I was always the person, I mean, and with the first five or six years, my partners and I, we worked 70 hours every week, and, and, and many weeks, 80 hours, and the first six years, we paid ourselves twenty-four to $26,000 a year, depending on how well we did, put everything back in the business, and then all of a sudden, it took off, and, you know, I served on a bunch of nonprofit boards and committees, I, you know, knew a lot of people in the community, and had a lot of these people's regular customers in the bar. And they often were saying that every city council member, every congressperson, every state legislator was a bum. Their bum, that bum, this bum. And I was the one kept saying, wait a second, this is America. They are us. If we're not happy with who's representing us, we should get people in there that, that will do it properly. And, and, and somehow, I've never really figured out how, but somehow they turned that around and Within the space of 18 months, I went from someone who had never, ever considered running for office or thought about it. Again, think of those. I got, part of it was I got LASIK surgery, literally, and didn't have these glasses on my head, these huge, even with plastic lenses, they were so big. Made me made look like the, the t- my temples were indented into, my, <laughs> into the side of my head. Uh, and suddenly I got LASIK surgery. I didn't have glasses, and I felt like a different person. And all these people that knew me pretty well said, you should do this. You should go out and... You know, you you would be a, a good mayor, and so I started going around, and visited mayors in other cities, 
visited a bunch of the mayors in the suburbs of Denver and found out why they hated the mayor of Denver and why the Denver mayor hated them. And I, you know, I got excited. I, I had a, a, actually a guy in Philadelphia uh, named Lee Driscoll, who'd been one of the founders of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, what I'm trying to think of the name of the law, but Ballard Spar, mm-hmm. or big firm, big yeah. firm. Uh, well, he was the founder of Aramark. Ballard Spar was where he came from. Uh, but anyway, he was great friends with David Cohen, yes. who had been uh, uh, Mayor Rendell, yeah. Gavin yeah. Rendell's chief of staff. And so he set up a meeting for me with David Cohen, and then I went and spent the night with the Driscolls at their home. And Mr. Driscoll said to me, uh, and he'd he'd run for Congress in in, in 1984 as a moderate. Democrat in a swing district and got crushed in the Reagan avalanche. And I said to him, so what your advice to me is probably don't run unless I've got money. Because they pulled all the, the DCCC, pulled all their support from for his campaign. They pulled it out two months out. He didn't have a chance. And he said, no, no, that's not my advice at all. If you have a legitimate chance to run for, for high office, you'd be a fool not to do it because you'll meet people that you will never, ever meet in any other way. And this is a unique opportunity. And I came back and I kept meeting with people for a few months, but that became kind of one of my kind of my north star that this that this is something really worth doing and and trying to see if an elected official can come from small business and really make a difference. And I remember that race because I was in the business then of doing campaigns, and we all looked at your ads. Uh, I think Bill Hillsman was the one who did yeah out of Minneapolis ads. yeah, and they were the most uh, unusual and. And I thought brilliant ads because they completely ran against type uh, for politicians. They were self. There was a, a level of self mockery in them, and um, and they actually became famous. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. The, those those ads for sort of cutting against the grain. Well, we were, we were having a hard time because I thought. I thought coming into this campaign, I was running against you know five lifetime politicians, all with the different constituencies that were, you know, one was a Latino former city auditor, an African American who was a state senator. There was a city councilwoman who was you know had invented the term soccer mom. All these people had constituencies and were, you know, had a lot of people following them. So I started out at three or four percent in the polls, and they were all at twelve to sixteen percent. And we didn't get any traction. I mean, that's where the, 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 the expression, the opposite of woe came from, was I would read this clipping to my young volunteers who were losing heart. It was about a professor of public speaking at the University of Wyoming uh, about the importance of using opposites. You know, talk about the worst of times, talk about the best of times, talk about the agony, talk about the ecstasy. Words gained impact together. And she asked her class, what's the opposite of despair? Kid says joy. And she goes, exactly. Despair, joy, same sentence, creates power. Then she said, what's the, what's the opposite of woe? And she, the kid way in the back raised her hand and goes, giddy up. And, <laughs> and, and it turns out that that is the opposite of well, right? It's, it's a great political story because so often when the, when the hill is steep is when you have to work hardest. So I, I started using that story and, and going around, but still wasn't getting traction. And we met Bill Hillsman. We went out and interviewed a bunch of people. And he was, at that time, he'd done uh, Paul Wellstone's campaign yes. against Rudy. Uh, and he did that famous Rudy Bashwitz. Yeah, Where's Rudy? And, and did a whole, it was a four-minute 
TV ad that he could only afford to run once. But then it got pieced out and used by all the news stations. Yeah, Rudy Boschwitz wouldn't debate him. Exactly. And the, the conceit was he was going all over Minnesota trying to find Rudy. <laughs> right. Where's Rudy? Where yeah. have you seen? And he'd go into all of Rudy's offices and say, mm-hmm. have you seen Rudy? And yeah, they say, right. nope, haven't well, seen him. Well, if he shows up here, would you tell him I'm looking for him? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Bill was a out-of-the-box iconoclast. And we did, it as you point out, very different ads, which at first I was very suspicious of. But I also liked uh, Bill uh, and, and it had a certain level of trust. So, and it's funny, we, we, we went up on the air three weeks earlier than we really, we couldn't afford to stay up consistently, which is in those kinds of campaigns, they say, don't go up and spend right. your money up front because if someone attacks you, you got to... Right. And, and I'd already gone around to each of the other candidates and, and, and made an agreement publicly in front of media where I agreed I wouldn't attack them and do attack ads against them and if they wouldn't attack me. And they all thought I was so... Uh, so harmless that they did. They all said, yes, of course, I'll never do an attack ad. So I wasn't worried about that as much. And we went up on the air, and it was one of these spring storms, right? It was the uh, uh, beginning of April, I think, first week of April. And it was right when we were invading Iraq. So we had this huge snowstorm. Everyone's stuck in their houses. And everyone's watching news, and we put a bunch of ads up on CNN, on, on, the, on the evening news and stuff. So everyone saw all these really funny ads at a time when there was really serious issues on, uh, about the country, and they were funny. And they were a little bit lighthearted, but with a real point about how politics could, could really solve serious challenges for the city. And three days later, maybe a week later, we got endorsed by one of the two large newspapers. Which So suddenly everyone was thinking, hey, this guy's kind of funny and cool and he's smart and he's done something with his life. And then, you know, I wish I could support him, but he'll never win, so I, I probably won't. And then all of a sudden I got this endorsement, which was the most, I mean, the most loving wet kiss you ever, anyone I ever got in <laughs> politics. It didn't even mention any of the other, con, uh, any of the other candidates. Uh, just nothing but, you know, everyone's talking about job creation. Here's the one guy who's created job creation. Everyone's talking about creating efficiency. Here's a guy who's created efficiency. Everyone's talking about revitalizing parts of the city. Here's the one guy. I mean, it was just over the top. And we went in three weeks period, we went from having, I think we were 5% in the, the last poll we saw to 23%. And everyone else, no one else was above 14. And you ended up getting 65%? Yeah, we got 65 uh, uh it was a two-to-one margin, and we had to have a runoff. I, in the first election, I got 48, but the next closest person got 23. So, But we still had a runoff, and, and again, it was two-to-one. I, I, I want to move forward because uh, I, I, I have so much stuff to cover uh, <laughs> that is contemporary. But uh, talk to me. Just give me a couple of minutes on the the experience of being mayor. You, you, you were very active in the education realm in your city. Huge infrastructure uh, uh, improvements that uh, really buttressed uh, and the city laid the foundation for growth. Um, tell me about that and, and what you learned from the experience of being mayor, having never been in government before. Well, and obviously government is very different from business, and especially the restaurant business. I'd not, at that point been uh, running restaurants for 15 years. But there are lessons you learn uh, in the restaurant business. You learn from the beginning there's no margin in having enemies. No matter how unreasonable that customer is, you'll do everything you can to make them feel respected. And that's a great 
political lesson. No, you don't have to attack your opponents quite so viciously. Uh, you also realize in the restaurant business when, when, it, when the fur is flying and the place is just jamming and you can't get the food out fast enough, you're all even. You're all the same family. doesn't matter whether you're tall or short or black or white, or straight or gay. Everybody's on the same team. And again, you learn that in a visceral way that in government was very valuable. And, and you know, having diversity in, in our restaurant, we saw that having Latinos and blacks, and we, we, brought, we, we tried to get everyone involved in decision-making, menu changes and stuff like that. And we felt that we were getting, va- you know, valuable benefit from that diversity. So we did that when I got elected mayor. So there was a real feeling that is different as 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 political life and 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 being a mayor is from business there's a lot of lessons you can yeah let me just say that you may derive that from running restaurants but apparently if you're in the hotel and restaurant and the and casino business this not having enemies thing doesn't (laughs) is not as apparent uh, as it is if you're doing uh well i don't think i I don't think our president did as well in casinos the last time i checked that was his major bankruptcy was yes a string of casinos yes 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 um you in the in education uh, you were viewed as a big education reformer in fact your uh your your chief of staff uh, when you became mayor was Michael Bennett, now senator from yeah. Colorado, and then you moved him over to the schools, uh, and uh, he was nationally known uh, for the kind of education reforms that uh, took place there. That wasn't always well received by teachers unions in the city. Yeah, but you have to, you know, in business, the I call it the alignment of self-interest. When you get different self-interest all aligned, is when really good things happen, and that's true in public life as well. And and Michael Bennett, who is one of the smartest, I think he's one of the most talented senators mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. Senate, and one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. Uh, he came out of kind of the venture capital side of high finance. Uh, but anyway, that that uh, that alignment of self-interest. I went to the the teachers union, and I said. You know, I'm very popular. I will put my political weight behind passing a property tax increase, and it will go, all go to salaries. We won't give it to the school district to do buildings. Where we're, this will strictly be for, for, for increase. But I want, I want to make sure that there is an incentive portion of it, at least half of it, is going to be those teachers that are the greatest teachers. So the teachers had to look at merit pay, in other words. Merit pay, which had never been done before. Yeah. had never been approved by a teacher's union. Uh, and yet I was offering them basically over in a one-year period about an 18% raise. Uh, not a common thing in the modern world, and they were going to have to give some chunk of it, but it's still all going to go to teachers one way or the other. They'd have to give some of it over to, uh, to merit pay, and they not only did they go along with it, but they had during the, uh, the election to get the teachers' union to support this before the actual campaign to the public, uh, they had me do the video because partly, partly Michael Bennett had, had suggested to me during the campaign that I should visit every public school in, in my campaign. And, and if, uh, that in my first four years, I should visit every public school. It turned out there were 161 public schools. So I spent two hours of every week in a public school. And, you know, I had a relationship with those teachers. And they, they trusted me that I was someone that was coming. And, they, you know, they all talked to each other, all the different schools. It's a very close-knit community of, of successful uh, public public school teachers, they, when I went and pitched that this was a better thing long-term, they weren't giving up that much and they were going to get great benefit, 
they agreed. And so the, the teachers union supported that initiative. Uh, first allowed us to make it so it could be half, half it could be incentive pay and then, or merit-based pay. And then the, the teachers union came out and really walked the neighborhoods. Do you think there's a potential for a grand bargain on a national scale uh, like that? To- yeah, I think, I think the, the, the feuding and bickering between all the different elements of, of, of education, right? The, the private schools and public schools, the charter schools and public schools, between teachers and administrators. I mean, here's some place where we've spent probably more public money with less success. Uh, although I, I, I think it's fair to say that Arnie Duncan and, and, and President Obama made some great progress on really important stuff like high school education or mm-hmm. graduation rates and, and achievement, the continuous achievements we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. But still, we're not where we need to be, and we know that. Uh, I think there's a way to, to align those self-interests so that we can... Uh, there, there's, there, there has to be something significant in it for everyone. You uh, you had a very successful run as mayor. You ran for governor uh, in 2010, which wasn't a great democratic year. It was an awful year is what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. The, the I, midterms I, after I, you. I have very bad <laughs> memories of that year, so I try and soft pedal. I try and soft pedal that. Uh, tell me uh, about the adjustment that you had to make uh, moving from uh, being a mayor, which in many ways is not a particularly partisan. A role to uh, to becoming governor of a, a of a of a very divided state. Well, and Colorado is one third Democrat, one third Republican, one third Independent. Still is today, pretty much rough justice. But being mayor was training wheels and really good training wheels. In Colorado, the mayor is elected on a nonpartisan basis. Now Denver's strongly Democrat, so it's been a long time since they've had a, anything but a Democratic mayor. But that experience of working with city council. You know, dealing with various constituencies and neighborhood groups and activists was powerfully useful. And plus, I worked with all the suburban mayors. And that's part of the reason. I was the first mayor of Denver in 140 years to get elected governor, largely because historically, Denver mayors had hated the suburbs and the suburbs had hated them. And they were always at cross purposes. And, and it's funny, when I first went around, when I was running for mayor, I ran on a ticket saying we're gonna. We realize we can never be a great city without great suburbs, and we hope that the suburbs will recognize they can't be great suburbs without a great city. So let's work together. From now on, Denver will only make decisions that help the suburbs as much as it helps Denver. Not only do the suburbs love that, right? I did a I did a reception the Saturday night before I got inaugurated. Once I won, and I had all the county commissioners and and metropolitan mayors from the whole region. So I had 120 people. In my loft, at last, my last development as a private sector developer, built this cool condominium loft and right in the heart of Lodo, view of the skyline. Most of these suburban mayors and city council members and, count, and, and county commissioners had never been to a political event in Denver in their lives because they were almost all Republicans, mm-hmm. two-thirds Republicans. So they came, and I gave that 60-second speech, the days of Denver making decisions for themselves are over, blah, blah literally 60 seconds, standing ovation, wild support. Any politician who makes a 60-second speech deserves a yeah, standing exactly. ovation. But, but the key was, as I went through the campaign, the people in Denver, you would think, well, they would get pissed off and say, hey, wait a second, what's going on? You know, What about us? You're, you're, you're saying you're going to help the suburbs. What about us? Universally popular with Denver residents is all. They thought the bitter divisions between you know suburbs and city were equally useless. What about the rural 
metropolitan divide. It really showed up. You you were governor uh, during the uh, massacre at Aurora, and you followed with uh, some significant gun control uh, or gun safety laws. How are you uh, relative to background checks? The size of magazines and so yeah. on. Uh, it was passed by a Democratic Senate and House, and there was a tremendous backlash to that. Sure. And you had actually members recalled, including the president of the Senate, who was a police chief from Colorado Springs, who lost his seat, and you lost control of the state Senate. Right, and he was a great person, and to this day, he he, he thinks it was worth it. Uh, and I, I, those elections, I took advice, you know, they told me to stay out of it, that I was maybe <clears throat> in Colorado Springs as a, as a, you know, a figurehead. I might be a, a big target, and I wouldn't help the cause. I think we should have gone right back at him. With, universal background checks is so basic to gun safety. I could not find a single, you know, I served all these, I was on the board of the Art Museum, the Chamber of Commerce. I didn't find a single Republican business person who was against universal background checks, not one. And yet I couldn't get you know all the all the Republican senators, state senators, and, and legislators said, you know, crooks aren't stupid. They're not going to get a, a they're not going to get a background check. Why are we waiting around? Well, we ended up going back and looking at the data. And in 2012, when we got to roughly a little over half the gun purchases, there were I mean there were 38 people convicted of homicide who tried to buy a gun yeah, and we stopped so, them. 133 so, so, people. So sometimes crooks are that stupid. Right, 3,000 people who yeah. tried to buy guns, we stopped them. Uh, and if you scaled that up, the numbers would be. Yeah, and it's not the it's not the complete solution. Uh, I don't have any. Do you think that the the I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you think that the uh, the mood of the country on this issue is shifting as a result of what these kids have done in Florida? Well, these kids are so cool. I mean, the courage and it's, it's, it's so cool what they are doing. And I think the mood is shifting. And I think that you're going to, we're going to begin to see progress. We're going to begin to see some Republican donors, not write checks uh, for Republican elected officials. We saw a few already. Yeah. yeah, We're already hearing that. Is it, is it night and day? Is everything going to change for the better? No, it's going to be a long arduous process by which we, convince people that there's pro and cons to every argument and many people especially in rural america are very very concerned that government's going to come take away their weapons and their opportunity to defend themselves and that i don't believe that's true but i also you know i learned in the restaurant business that the best way to persuade anyone about anything is just to listen to them and we've never got anywhere trying to tell somebody why they're wrong and we're right and even in rural areas, when, when you get take the time and invest yourself to a discussion, a conversation, uh, many times, again, people aren't going to move miles, but they are going to move their opinion. And certainly within something like universal background checks, that's what's going to, you know, that's, that's part of what's going to happen is that, that step by step, we'll make it a national decision. The other, uh, another issue that came up on your watch was... Uh was weed right marijuana is 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 legal in the state of Colorado by a vote of the voters you opposed that yeah yeah i uh, a you you don't want to uh one of my staff said 
Hickenlooper, you're just lazy, and which is, you know, I am always been the hardest worker. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack. Not the smartest. I'm dyslexic. All these things, but I am a hard worker. And he was giving me such a hard time. I was really, I was really irritated. But the bottom line is, if you're doing something for the first time, and even Copenhagen, Amsterdam, they never legalized marijuana. They decriminalized it. But to legalize something, you set up a whole regulatory framework on how you're going to enforce it. How do you monitor? How do you collect taxes? You know, how do you decide what the taxes start at and change? All that stuff, if it's never been done, it's just a steep hill to go up. And then plus, now you're, going to, you're doing all that hard work and in conflict with the federal government, with the federal law. So I thought— Which, that, which you now are because the Trump administration has threatened yeah. to uh, crack down on— Well, they've these- threatened, I don't think— I, again, uh, I, I've met with a couple times with Attorney General Sessions, and he's been very blunt. He says, I don't think the country, that if, any, if there are more people doing drugs of any kind in the United States, it makes us weaker, not stronger. And I would say, well, what if they're doing the same amount of drugs, which is what our data suggests in Colorado? And the difference is now everyone's paying taxes, and, and, and the business people that are you know, raising the marijuana instead of being in some foreign country and smugglers getting the, the margin. What if it's all, all those jobs are happening in, in the United States? Uh, and so we've, but, but he agreed, Attorney General Sessions agreed that his primary focus is heroin and meth, uh, human trafficking, I mean, the really big issues, and that he doesn't have the resources to go after marijuana. So he's not, I don't think he's going to come close down the house. I'm sure when uh, you were opposing this initiative that it wasn't lost on some of the people who were supporting it, that you made a fortune selling beer, which <laughs> I'm here to tell you can be a mind-altering substance <laughs> you when, have when, consumed in, when consumed in <laughs> a large enough uh, proportion. Uh, do, do you see any irony in that? Yeah, it was pointed out to me many times, uh, and uh, there's a couple differences. One is with kids. I was every brain scientist I talked to described how the intensely the the THC is so much more intense in mar- modern marijuana than when we were in college, and I inhaled. Uh, that most brain scientists believe that even once a week taking this high THC marijuana will take a sliver of your long-term memory. Your synapses are going to grow together in a not perfect way and that you won't notice it, you know, if it's just over a month or two, but long-term you will lose slivers of your long-term memory, which is essentially your IQ. It's your intelligence. It's how we, you know, how we recover information, what we've seen and learned, how we access that is critical to our success in life and, and, our, and the quality of our life. So, we were very worried that we'd see a spike in consumption, and especially we thought we'd see a spike in teenage consumption, which is very different than alcohol. Alcohol is not good for a rapidly growing teenage brain, but most of the people I've talked to don't think it's anywhere near as bad. That being said, we look at it now, and there was no giant spike in consumption. There was a slight increase in teenage consumption for the first two years, but by taxing it, we have you know $220 million a year, of which we spend a chunk marketing to teenagers and their trusted adults, their uh, coaches, their parents, their clergy, that why this is bad for them. And I think that's been very successful. And we've also looked at, you know, not only has there not been a spike with kids, there's been no real increasing increase in consumption of marijuana in any of the demographics except for um, the seniors, 
which is either the baby boomers coming home to roost, reliving their college days, or maybe arthritis and the pains mm-hmm. of growing old, that this is better than opioids There's or other something pain to relief. look forward to. <laughs> um, so... Uh, the another issue that you've had to deal with uh, in Colorado, um, maybe uh, more than most states, is the impact of all of this uncertainty about DACA and the immigration issue. Uh, how has that impacted uh, your state, and what are you prepared to do, given the fact that these young people, more than a few of whom live in your state, are, are living in this state of uncertainty and could be subject to being deported? Well, and where would they be deported to? Most of these kids came here when they were one or two or three years old, have never been back to Argentina or Mexico or anywhere, right? Anywhere in the world where they came from. And we're talking about deporting them from the only home they've ever known, the only country they've ever been a part of. Uh, To me, this is one of the most frustrating and senseless examples of this insane level of bitter division. And I don't disagree that we need borders and we need to be able to police them. I don't think we need a wall, but I think... You're going to send your National Guard down there if you're asked? It depends. You know, we sent our National Guard down for George W. Bush asked and and President uh, uh, Obama asked, and we were happy to, in the right role, we're not going to send our troops down there to do the work of immigration Mm -hmm. enforcement, Mm -hmm. right? We will guard the border in some way from, uh, in certain ways, and relieve the border patrols from some of their uh, we will leave them from some of their duties so that they can go do their job. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to be part of enforcement under any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, and nor should we. I mean, there, there, there are judicial case after case after case. There is judicial case after case that says that states should not, not only they're not required to, but they should not uh, usurp federal responsibilities such as immigration. Your state has actually been some for a long time. It was a sort of ground zero, Tom Tancredo <laughs> and so on, fighting uh, against uh, immigrants. Well, I, and I am, you know, I am sympathetic. When I ran for re-election, I met three different people. These and these are people I actually met and talked to who had. Uh, two of them had commercial painting companies, and one of them had a commercial sheetrocking company. They had all three of them been in business more than 15 years. Two of them had been in business over 20 years, and they went out of business because they wouldn't pay people under the table. And at a certain point, there were so many people, so many undocumented workers and people getting paid under the table, and the penalty was so light that if they got caught, they got a slap on the wrist, that the, the people that had built, built their businesses over decades we're run out of business, and I I can see where the anger comes from. Again, you could you can you can uh, help a, a, by normalizing the status of these uh, undocumented workers. Well, exactly. And- well, not that we need the workers now, and part of the job those people that were losing their businesses, uh, they should if if we normalized the the immigrants and made them legal workers, those guys wouldn't have been that then they wouldn't have been driven out of business. You, you've obviously one of the great uh, responsibilities of any governor in the modern age is dealing with health care. You've governed through this uh, period, this transition with the ACA and the attempt to sort of roll it back. What, what is the status of health care in your view and what, what needs to be done now? Well, I think that I think I was terrified after Trump became the president that he would immediately dismantle it. And we focused on trying to get Republicans and Democratic governors to all say we don't want to roll back coverage. 
we realize there are things to be improved. So making sure that we get the uh, price supports for the open market, for the private market, make sure we have a Which high- Which you haven't. We, we haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. Uh, and, and to get the high-cost funds, uh, some sort of a high-cost fund that takes the really expensive people. We have four people in Colorado that, that cost between 500000 and a million dollars a year in their medical costs. And that raises everybody's premium in our exchange dramatically. Well, if, and it drives a lot of people, the premium is so high, it drives a lot of people out of insurance, and therefore, you know, it's a, it's a spiral. What we're trying to do is get a high-cost fund, fund that out of a little sliver from everybody who's insured, and then more people come into the exchange, and it would lowers, that continues to lower costs for everyone. Those kinds of things we were so close to getting even just a few weeks ago, and I think again the affordable. You've been working with Governor Kasich and others to. Yeah, and Governor Kasich has been great. I mean, we—he's a pretty conservative Republican. I'm a at least socially very liberal Democrat, and we've been trying to find show that we can find common ground and compromise and and really fix uh, the Affordable Care Act without throwing the baby throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, obviously, the administration continues to be hostile to the ACA, uh, but it's been durable. Uh, what what is your level of confidence that the program will move forward? Well, I've been so amazed, and a lot of this I give you know Sylvia Burwell, who was the head of the mm-hmm. HHS HHS at the end of the administration, laid a foundation in place where people really began to appreciate, especially working people, the the value of their health care and how important it was. What that the, the, now they had coverage, and so. I think we're going to see in the midterms, I think we're going to see healthcare being the number one reason people vote. And I think it's going to bring a, a large number of Democrats into Congress. And I think that the Republicans are going to sit back and look and say, huh, that boat has sailed. The Affordable Care Act is here to say, maybe we'll rename it or change it enough so we can say it's ours. But I don't think that the government is going to successfully- Not going back, huh? Yeah, I think, that is, I think we're past that. And it's- you know, it's exciting. I mean, it's a it's one of the rare successes we've had with President Trump in office. Impeachment is 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 in the air, uh, and there are Democrats who are suggesting that uh, that the party ought to be committed to it uh, as a platform. I mean, when I think about your voters, for example, you've got a hot congressional race in the suburbs of uh, of Denver. Do the swing voters in that district do they want? They want the Democrat to be talking about impeachment. I think at least in Colorado, the swing voters I've been talking to are not concerned with impeachment. And I think they, uh, not all of them, but most of them feel that it would be overkill. Now, there are certainly a, a many Democrats that, that it is, it has it, become visceral and they care about it deeply. And again, I mean, he has been skirting corruption at such a flagrant level that I understand the attraction. But my, my gut feeling, and again, I'm not a lifetime uh, political expert, but my sense is that it's probably not as useful in the midterm elections as some of the other things like health care. So uh, I, I would be remiss in the time we have remaining not to ask you about your plans, because uh, you are of great interest to everyone as a potential you're one of the dozens and dozens of people whose names have been mentioned relative to the presidential race. So first— Oh, I thought you were talking about what I was doing this weekend. To uh, that, that is of less interest here <laughs> we, than the, the longer time horizon. First of all, just uh, evaluate for me uh, President Trump uh, and, uh, and how you see him as a leader, 
and as a potential opponent. And then tell me what what is your place in all this? Because there are people who would say, you know, centrism is great, but it doesn't really sell in a in a in a very polarized political environment. And you know, how's John Hickenlooper going to sell himself sure. uh, to Democrats who are who are quite uh, quite worked up now about this president? Well, and that argument has been was said to me when I ran for mayor and was when I ran for governor. Uh, that my background, my experience, you know, I've always navigated my life on a, uh, navigated successfully on diminished expectations. It, it can be considered a, a, a real advantage. Uh, answer your first question, you know, my wife and I have discussed it. We, we are, have talked to people. We haven't formed a pack. We're not going out and aggressively pursuing it now, partly because I think what we're working on, we're doing a bunch of workforce stuff now in Colorado that no other state is doing. Uh, we're making advances in healthcare and controlling the cost while at the same time expanding coverage uh, that I think is breathtaking. The moment I start a pack and start talking about what I'm going to do in 2020, not only do I get distracted, but my cabinet gets distracted. And it's a disadvantage. Uh, yeah, it really is because the race will probably start the minute the gavel falls on the 2018 midterm. I think you're right. And I will, all those things, as you know, you've got to have your message down. You've got to get things down to 60 seconds. And and I am spending very little time. I think about it sometimes, but relatively speaking, very little time on that because I've, I've, I've attracted, I think, the most talented team of people I've ever worked with. And we're taking on what I think are the most important issues a state can deal with. And I am... I think it's more important to focus on that and finish strong. And, you know, in my life, every time I focus on what's in front of me, I end up having choices. Sometimes it's a different choice than what I thought, uh, but but it brings me certain choices. So in terms of Trump, obviously, I mean, I don't, I don't, we, we don't allow ourselves to discuss him in the office because it's just a waste of time. There's too many stories to be told. Seems like some of the stuff he does would affect the things you do in the office. Though. Absolutely. And so in that case, then we're, if you're looking about talking about weakening the Environmental Protection Agency or you know uh, disrupting what, how we look at our public lands, we do deal rapidly and aggressively with uh, some of those threats. And I think we've been successful in in pushing back. I look at what he's done. I mean, you look at this form of government, which is somewhat fragile, right? No, very few. I'm, I'm not aware of any form of government that's ever lasted more than, let's say, 500 years, 600 years. But the Roman Empire, I think, was 480 right. years. Uh, we're we're halfway through there, and we're beginning to see some real stress. He's attacking the free media, right, at a time when they're already economically uncertain because of all this new technology and you know the internet. Uh, he's attacking the judiciary, which is again another fundamental protection of or support of our of our form of government and then i mean step back and look at your he's attacking the the hallmarks the the the, the real strength of our national security the fbi the uh, the secret service you go down that list the military in many cases so i worry that even though it hasn't broken the fabric of democracy he's weakening it he's certainly stressed it and someone's going to have to run against him uh, from a point of view of here's what you've done and, and, and here's – there's got to be some graphic way of portraying that that gets people's attention. And, and maybe humor is, is some – you know, when I was a kid and getting bullied, and he is 
archetypical bully, uh, one of my great devices became putting using a humorous edge to these bullies in front of other people that maybe not, you know, made it look less advantageous for them to follow through on their threats. And they stopped threatening me at a certain point. I'm not saying that that's a, a, a perfect and, and, and unique solution. Yeah, I used to, to find Trump. running uh, an efficient way of, <laughs> you were, of dealing you with been, it. You must well, I mean, but it is I an was. issue because, you know, you are, you, you're, you're, you're such a bright guy and you've done so much and you have such uh, an unusual and diverse background. Um, but, you know, you are, you are sort of the anti-Trump I mean, you know, you're. I not, resent you're, that you're remark. Not, you're, <laughs> well, actually, I guess I don't. You're not a. You know, you're not. You're. You're not like this huge personality getting in people's faces. Uh, you know, uh, like WWF style. Do you think you need that to run for president against this president? It's, uh, I, I am unclear, to be honest. Uh, as I said, I focus so intensely on what I'm doing. I haven't given as much thought to what that strategy would be like. But I'm sure there are a lot of people out there working on that. And I think, you know, WWF, uh, actually, I'm old friends with a guy named Michael Goldberg, uh, lives, owns an amazing place up in Aspen called The Belly Up. It's the only nightclub for miles up there. And his brother is Bill Goldberg, uh-huh. WWF. So I have hung out with Bill Goldberg. I have helped him in and out of the ring when he kind of rejoined the fight, the fight game. So of- if you ran, would he prep you for a debate <laughs> with Donald Trump? <laughs> Uh, I don't think he'd want to do that. Uh, but you look at how so, that kind of a uh, of a event is put together, and how much of it is show and how much of it is real. You know, it's ninety nine percent show and and really well thought through and 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 predictable. I think some approach. There's got to be some level of intention that that can model on the on the. Uh, on the theatrical requirements to take on someone like Trump, he's and, he's I I don't I I would have a, a much harder time I think beating some of the Democratic candidates. I think there are so many really talented people running. I think Trump, if unless something tra- yeah, changes no, dramatically. You. Well, on that subject, uh, wh- what is your place in the Democratic in a Democratic race? What is it that what would distinguish? John Hickenlooper from the <laughs> if I were running from the if you were running from the sure. legions of other Democrats who were offering themselves as potential. Well, I guess there's again I respect people like Michael Bennett and the, and the the hard work that's done in the Senate and the House, and I know it's very unpopular now, and people hate Washington. Uh, this is like one of those Trump preludes, which is where you say the nice thing and then you lower yeah. the boom. No, well, I'm not lowering the boom. I'm I'm saying that I've been in, in running a state. Hiring people, making decisions, and we took the economy from 40th in the country to first. The last two years, we're the number one economy in the country. We have pushed economic development into the rural parts of the state, I think, more successfully uh, than than almost every other state. Uh, you know, we you look at healthcare. We've been controlling costs in healthcare. We're doing a lot of things that the country needs. And as a governor. I'm not connected to Washington, right? I mean, I'm obviously concerned about it, and, and in some cases, I, I have my nightmares about what's going on there sometimes. But I think most governors, I, I, I'm I'm more focused on solutions and decisions and putting the right team together than trying to uh, worry about Washington. And I think there might, who knows, who can predict, but there might be an appetite for 
someone who's hired people and managed things and made a budget. You know, of all the people, there are not that many candidates in either party that actually started a business from scratch, were entrepreneurs, and made a budget and know how to assess risk and reward and how do we get the best value for every dollar we spend. I mean, right now, given the the federal deficit, that's probably not a bad skill to have on your resume. And you and you will wait until after you leave office to make a final decision. Yeah, I think so. I think you know, my wife and I, we kind of laid out a schedule. We we are talking about it with, uh, you know, with each other. Obviously, good. That's a good plan. <laughs> good start. Yes. Uh, but then probably the, this summer we'll see what how it begins to feel, uh, and 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 begin making more serious. I think at a certain point, you would be able to advise me much better than I could advise you, but you, you'd have to get much more polished than what I am now in terms of what my message would be and what, what do I bring that's different than other candidates. Well, uh, you got a great story, and uh, it's, it's great to spend time with you, and we're thankful that you're here at the Institute of Politics to share it with these young people here. You've done... A great amount of work and your service certainly to the country dwarfs anything I have done so far. Uh, okay, so far. <laughs> I'm not even sure that's true, but thank you, Governor. No. Good to be with you. Nice to see you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.